Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho, our podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner with me Eason and me Bex. And today we're bringing you a bonus episode which features an interview with Ian Rakoff who was the writer of the episode Living in Harmony which we covered on the podcast in our previous episode. Although to Prisoner fans Ian is best known for his work on Living in Harmony, in his career as an editor he's worked on some of the most remarkable films of the 60s and 70s. He's probably best known for all the work that he's done with the director Lindsay Anderson, including on the films If and Oh Lucky Man. He's worked with Stephen Frears, John Borman on Deliverance and Robert Altman as well. We met up with Ian at his home to have an extended discussion about his life and career and most notably his interest in comic books and how they've been a major part of his life since he was a child. Yes, so if you were to pay a trip to the V&A in London, that's the Victoria and Albert Museum, what you'll now find is that they are host to the Rakoff Collection, <laughs> which is a collection of comic books that Ian put together over pretty much his whole life. 16,000 original comics that are now housed in the V&A, and Ian has a tremendous knowledge of comic books and also their cultural and social importance over the 20th century. So in this extended interview, we don't just focus on the prisoner, we do focus on his life growing up in South Africa and also his career outside of the prisoner as well. Yes, so Ian very kindly invited us to his home, fed us lots of tea and lots of fresh homemade bread that was cooking while we were there and was kind enough to speak to us for a really long time and we're very grateful for the time that he gave us and we've got some wonderful stories coming up that he shared with us. In the first part of the interview, we spoke to Ian mainly about his early life growing up in South Africa during apartheid era and his first interactions with comics that became an integral part of his life and then would go on to root themselves in every aspect of his life and career as he moved to the UK to work in the British film industry. And he also shared with us a snippet from his uh, memoirs, which he's collating at the moment. And these are referenced throughout the interview. So you began your lifelong interest in in comics when you were a young boy. Um, yes, yeah. yes. Well, I believe it uh, saved me. This was in South Africa, and I was a very sickly child, and um, I just discovered American comics and I they they just became my I don't know what I was also a voracious leader reader so I was not a ignoramus I mean just American comics you know I was reading the classics at a very young age and all of that but I frequently was hurtled back into bed and told I was going to die and all I had really was the, the wonderful comic books. Nothing made sense to me. I mean, what I was seeing. And, um, well, as you prisoner, partake, that all makes sense to you in a way. Shall I just read you a paragraph, which is uh, like summary? 
I'm thinking of calling it, I'm not sure of the title, Apartheid and the Fortress of Fear. That's my latest version of the title. I had something like The Prisoner and Apartheid or something like that, but this is what I seem to have settled in, and this is just something I wrote the other day. Anybody with half a brain was frightened. If not, someone had marbles missing. The wrong colour, the wrong gender, the wrong shape or size, the wrong language, the incorrect accent, any imperfection in the eyes of the keepers of legality could pounce with impunity and you didn't have a hope in hell, irrespective of perfect credentials. You could vanish and no one would be answerable. It was a frightening time in a frightful landscape. A lifelong prisoner. So that's the kick-off point. And um, how's your tea? Lovely. Yeah. Is there a particular um, character or comic book role that you remember from your childhood that sparked your interest in comics as a sort of potential force for social change? Yes. But I would say that I can't remember actively reading it, but it came, but the gravitas of it came to me later in life. Quite honestly, but there was, well, when I was 11 or 12, I uh, got involved with the civic society at school. Now, this was a white traditional school, and um, I became secretary of the civic society, and I arranged the first talk uh, event. I did was um, playing a record which was a satire on Senator Eugene McCarthy and it was it was like hilarious but pithy and terrifying and of course I thought each time I thought this they would see some relevance to South Africa Nothing, but they laughed. And, um, you know, the chap who was the chairman, who's a friend of mine, said, isn't that banned? I said, well, you're going to turn me in? Or something like that. I mean, so in other words, I was skating close to the edge from early on. And that's a Captain Marvel comic, 1950, I think it was. So I must have given the talk in 52 or something like that. And I just started uh, senior school, high school. And uh, it was this one story which wasn't on the cover. There was no reference. It was um, in the back. You wouldn't notice it. But Captain Marvel is for me one of the greatest ever. That's my supreme favorite. Witty. And, uh, and he got killed off by Superman. Uh, in a court case, they settled out of court for plagiarism, which was a lie. But <laughs> Superman was just, you know, he had the suits on his side. <laughs> and uh, then Captain Marvel uh, 
56 probably it was just sorry 54 sloping into 55 um but it never got to court but they tussled back and forth for years um over the plagiarism thing Fawcett Comics versus DC. Well, DC won. But anyway, I had the story, the story stayed with me. And of course, I, when I was 17, I had to go, um, my parents forced me to get rid of the comics. They sent me to a shrink and uh, all that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, the fact that I was brighter than most of the boys in my school didn't count for much against the extraordinary prejudice against the culture. But I always thought that I had reconfigured the story, everything, because I had no proof that I found this story that um, Billy Batson, who is... um, Captain Marvel, um, ordinary identity, is a young man who's a newspaper uh, reporter. And he goes to this town called Perfection and they want to celebrate um, their hero, Captain Marvel. And they have made a perfect town. And um, anyhow, Captain Marvel Shazam and Captain Marvel is there. Well, their idea of perfection was that they um, evicted, it was all based on the Greek ideal of the superior male, not male, just person. They got rid of all the people that were too tall. They got rid of the people that were too fat. And then one guy who had purple hair. And anyhow, Captain Marvel becomes mayor for a day. Now, he's appalled with what he's seen. So the problem is he can't really just use his immortal powers to wipe up the bigots. So, gradually, he passes through the day different laws until finally he's he's alone with the leading citizen. And Captain Marvel says, Well, look at you. I'm an inch taller than you. And, um... I think it's a crime that you're inferior. Punches him. He says, but that's insane. That's a law you just made up. Yes. And what else have you been doing? And, um, well, that's the gist of it. And then they beg all the fat people, all the thin people. But it was just such a wonderful parable for South Africa. You know, and you, you, it wouldn't have got um, uh, banned uh, in, in that time because they they wouldn't have noticed because there was no apparently race in it. And of course, the the leading citizen um, finally 
has started a society for misfits because he's the biggest misfit there ever was for believing in that. And I don't know, child or adult, I just thought this was wonderful. So I gave a talk on that. Uh, that was the second talk I did in the civic society. And, um, but anyway, I, I, as I say, I kept on thinking, did I make this thing up? And then like 30, 40 years later, Paul Gravette, you may know the name, you may not, he's the most eminent comic book thinker. He had a big exhibition at the British Library and he travels the world and um, he's he's just a big deal and um, when I sold my stuff to the V&A he tracked me down because uh, he studied at Cambridge, that's right, he studied law but all the time he was busy with comic books, going to conventions and so I don't think, I think he may have worked in a law capacity for a year, but it was always comics. And um, inevitably we became great friends. Anyhow, one birthday, Paul comes. Captain Marvel, number 113. And there the story was exactly as I remembered it, as I've just told it to you. And um, well, I've got it there. It's a bit worn now. I was always looking. But I spoke to so many people, nobody had ever heard of the story. And I know I went to uh, to lawyers and comics somewhere, and there was an American lawyer, um, Zeit, Zeit, or something like that, who told, he was the only one who gave a really good talk on comics because he just knew the whole culture and he was in his field was security i think so but he said to me where did you he says i've never heard of that captain moral so unfortunately i've never found a copy that i could buy which i would like to do uh, just because this other one uh, it's been shown and displayed so often it's showing its age, like some other people I know. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you then channel your slightly rebellious nature against sort of the enforced conformity that, that was around you when you were, when you were growing up? After, after comics had been taken away, how did that... Oh, no, well, that, no, no, before that yeah. I, I, I was activated. Yeah. I... Um, had quite a few incidents and I gave one talk which turned into a riot and um, I ran for my life and, and if the deputy headmaster hadn't come past and found me grappling on the floor in the corridor with all the boys I mean they went berserk I thought you know a few might not be white racists and a few friends of mine I thought would be okay but one chap just didn't, um, said he couldn't come to my talk. And I said, oh, Duncan Middleton was his name. He wasn't a particular friend of mine. And he says, my father's uh, 
works um, for the um, uh, orchestra, the city orchestra, the council, and he's under house arrest. So I don't dare make us anything worse for him. Fine. He says, but I remember, I bumped into him years later. And he says, yes, I remember that. And then he told me the story then. But I've used it, obviously, as if it happened at the time. Like another friend of mine, who's, uh, uh, his parents were too, uh, he's, he's, sorry, his father and his uncle were both senators simultaneously. And they'd studied in Holland together. And they were all from Namakaland, which is where my father was born, which was a desert region, practically, um, which is just below Namibia. And I'm not sure where my mother was born. She might have been born in Namibia. But anyway, um, he lived there and um, grew up uh, while he was born there. But it all, all, I was in Cape Town, and that's where I grew up, uh, literally in the shadow of Table Mountain. And so, um, you ask me how it, uh, yes, well, there was that one talk that I did, which just went ballistic. You know, I got a banned uh, publications, UNESCO, through my sister, who was a politico older than me and her uh, fiancé and they moved to America and then just totally disconnected themselves from policy, politics. But he was um, the head of a student representative body um, in South Africa and he was sent to meet Nkrumah who was the first uh, independent president of the, uh, the continent. So, so I had, you know, those, she supplied me with a lot of information and I got her to get me into a township, which, you know, obviously white boys weren't supposed to go to, or white people. And so my talk was a, a banned UNESCO publication on heredity and um, a, a race, really, covered that territory. Mendel's theories on um, peas, I think it was, the Augustian friar. And um, that, uh, as I say, turned bad. I just, I couldn't believe the hatred. Actually, I've got a Bern Hogarth uh, Tarzan I mean, I can't stop to dig these things out for you because it's just take too long. And um, where there's this white bikini woman being savaged by savages, and Tarzan and uh, his face—it's a just one frame. I, it's my definitive face of hatred. I mean the. I mean, Bern Hogarth, I don't like his Tarzan, full stop. Do you know, it's beautifully drawn, but it's racist fucking fascist. 
that's all there is to it. My favourite is Jesse Marsh, who started drawing, uh, well, 47. I've got all the originals, but I just thought I've got one of the compendiums or whatever. That's Jesse Marsh's work. Early stuff, so it's not so polished. But I just felt that he was the only humane Tarzan, that it, it wasn't racist. It, it just didn't reek of superiority and inferiority, and which all the others have, you know, they're all in the mould of Ryder Haggard. And he just seemed more authentic and real. But also what I did at school then, I was in cadet parade. And, you know, all polished up and wearing the gear. And about, I don't know, about 400 of us, I suppose. There must have been hundreds anyway. And um, the parade was called to a halt. And I was summoned out of rank. And uh, the commander, who was our history teacher, um, he was a major, I think, in the British Army or something. Major Spencer Smith. He says, Rakoff, your right arm is not straight. I know, sir. It's been operated on three times and it'll never be straight. Oh, oh, because I was one of his favourites. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't step back into rank. I said, I want to say something. I was 14 or 15. That's when the talk was also, and I'm not sure. I'm sure I think this came afterwards. And I said, um, I, I, I don't want to be a part of this. You mean you're a conscientious objector? You'd like to be? No, sir. I object to being part of the white military. I don't know, I just, I wasn't premeditated or anything, just... And then I was, uh, then I marched off. And of course my marks in history plummeted. <laughs> so, um... Anyhow, that's what I've been, all of that is sort of what I've been writing about. No, in this thing, and Fortress of Fear was the title of a 19, early 1930s um, newspaper strip. Not one of the top ones, but like, like B-feature, but very good, well syndicated, and science fiction, uh, Brick Bradford, and uh, I'd read him in my childhood, but Obviously, I read this one in my adulthood. And it's a story about uh, Brick Bradford being stranded in the desert or something, or going out to get this uh, uh, potentate who is um, the Hasashins. And they, you know, obviously smoked. But they were called the assassins, and they they were like a worldwide 
um, force. And of course, um, Brett Bradford brings them down with the help. You know, it's aeroplane. It's all in the desert. And uh, the funny thing is that, like with um, this comic, the villain that stayed a villain in comics for a very long time was Arabs. This chap was obviously very conscious of all different tribes and relationships, but I want another cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs>Seventeen. They, uh, as I told you, mentioned earlier. I agreed to let go of the collection, and um, um, to go to university. That was the deal, and um, of course, everything that the comics had so effectively suppressed came to the fore and I thought I was a, a six foot four superhero literally you know and I, I was absolutely fearless and I just was very very strict I mean I did uh, you know I had some cultural I got involved with a little theater there which was like a time warp that um, apartheid somehow never penetrated. How the collection went, I mean they kept the audiences mixed, they kept the staff that were there, you know, already, because the Cape was a very different world to the rest of the country. But other than that, I mean, I was just superhero time. I mean, I I would track down people and follow them, you know, and obviously I tried to cross, cross the colour line. And uh, I think the first heavy duty chap I met was at uh, a party in Belleville. Now this I think I... No, 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 I must have it in my story. I don't think I took it out. But, um, oh yes, I'd been thrown out somewhere else. That's a whole other story. But um, So I was on the hunt, but this time without the uh, comic books. And I um, went to a party in Belleville, which was very much Afrikaans, in a way, poor, poor Afrikaans. And somehow I'd got invited there, and... I remember my cousin Eugene, and we always went out to things together, and he said he'd never go be seen dead in Belleville, he's not going to go there. It's like miles away, I mean, long train journey. I went to the party, and um, it was pretty dull and deadly, and um, then this motorbike rolled up. And um, the driver had, you know, the full leather gear, 
and he, he just exuded muscle. And, uh, and the other one was a tall, lanky fellow, um, Cape Coloured in effect. I don't know what Bruno was. But they certainly were not welcomed at that party. I went over to them and I greeted them and said, let me introduce you. These are friends of mine. And so they stayed for the party and then I said, all right, that's enough of that. <laughs> and I, then my heart sank. I saw a fleet of posh cars arriving and I knew it was probably the Seapoint boys who were very affluent and very, um, whatever they were. And I was, there's no point, I couldn't run anywhere. But they saw, when, as soon as they saw me, they'd want to do me. I suppose this was the James Dean era, also rebel without a cause. And these things must have slipped in. Well, no, no, it's just the way life was. And so they came and they surrounded me. Well, I just took a swing at this one guy and, um, you know, expected to be kicked down or what have you, and uh, nothing happened. And I heard this awful sound behind me. As these two guys, and the one was reaching into his pocket, and the other one had a flick knife. And the Seapoint boys, oh. despite, I don't know how many, there were about six of them, I think. And they just turned and ran for their lives. Because they'd never experienced this sort of character, really. Yeah, so that just opened up a whole new, and I just sort of went around hunting down, trying to cross the colour line. I mean, I went to, I know Bruno was his name, the biker, and it must have been him that sent me to Makula in Sussex Street, Salt River, which is a very wide street. And uh, it was Cape Coloured area, in effect, you know. And it was um, rough. And um, Makula was a, a... I mean, he was a very religious man. He'd hudge, had his hudge and all that sort of thing. And he was... They were digging up the garden all the time, which is where they buried the... Um, uh, um, marijuana or whatever it was, or, or illegal wine, because there were wine restrictions. And um, my friend, I got uh, this friend of mine, Brian Richmond, who did come to my talk. And he, um, we'd still stayed friends and School was almost over, or over, I'm not sure. I'd have to read what I've written. <laughs> and um, I, I sort of was intrigued by this strange den at the back of the house, which was a very large garden, and it was anything but social. And, you know, and, and people were sort of... And I noticed this one white guy there, a big 
he build and you know very live I could see him. piercing blue eyes also and um, he was falling about drunk but he wasn't drunk and he wasn't drinking so of course as soon as but he had this damage on me and swollen I thought this is interesting <laughs> in this sort of environment but then I'd had a few more experiences I have to tell you <laughs> I was not the same person that jumped on that motorbike out at Belleville and got squeezed between them and just roared away because all the party guys I mean I don't know I don't think they played cricket but I think I played hockey against one of them on gravel and uh, they all came charging after us with hatred <laughs> anyhow so um, a chap you know doing this thing then I see and there was like heavy quite high cement steps coming out of the kitchen where my friend was um, with the owners uh, having tea I mean he was quite frightened I think <laughs> And I, I called him, I said, Brian, Richmond, you've got to do something for me. And he borrowed his father's car, so he probably were still schoolboys, I don't know. And um, I said, you're going to go to your car, bring it around to the front here, and sit in the, in the driver's seat and keep it on all the time with the back door open. How, how I actually configured all of this, I have no idea. I mean, it sounds uh, a bit far-fetched in a way that I could have enacted such precision with what was going to come down. Then I'm back in my perch watching the chap and I sort of, I think I have a fleeting exchange of a look with him. And uh, there's something very naughty about this fellow, but I mean, a real, a real fighter. You could just tell that, you know. And um, suddenly, top of the stone steps are three very big white men. They're obviously off-duty policemen. And they come down into the backyard and they're off to Harvey. They want to beat him to an inch of his life. That's the motive. That's what's going on. And uh, and the the shortest of the of the two, which means he was probably only six foot. And he was like like that, but it wasn't fat, you know, sort of, sometimes you get, like sumo wrestlers, you don't see musclers. was that sort of build. He took off his jacket and perfect, Harvey's drunk. That's exactly what we want. So he goes up to Harvey, um, and um, he's about to, like, just pummel him, 
and suddenly Harvey's dropped the demijohn, is like fast and alert and alive, and he's beating the chapel, and there's blood everywhere, to, to a pulp. And the, the, the two other cops are sort of so taken aback, they, they move slowly, and then they try to get behind Harvey to, um, to jump him from behind, because they know, they apparently, as I learned later, Harvey got thrown off the police force because he was so violent. And he, be he kept on beating up other policemen. So, um, I, I got behind them and I flicked over my flick knife, which I'd been given by Bruno and I'd been equipped quite heavily. And I dashed past them and I just grabbed Harvey by the elbow and said, Run! And we ran. And um, I got the story that he was thrown off the police, etc. And he says, I want to be your friend. Hold on. You want to be my friend? Fine. I'll be your friend. But you've got to pretend you're not a racist fascist. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there we are. I was around with Harvey. So, but I kept on finding out groups and getting into fracas and involvements. I was a lesbian for quite a while. I moved with just a gang of lesbians. I found this girl in the theatre who I saw was being abused. I didn't like the way and she was like, again, that sort of square build. And she was, you know, and we just became the best of friends. I mean, immeasurably. And, uh, and I just, it was a, I, I felt there was a sort of a prejudice against her. Um, backstage, you know, from everybody. And her parents, I remember, used to have, she used to have these big lesbian parties, and the parents would sit there very nice with everybody, and then they'd leave. And they totally accepted what she was. So, anyway. <laughs> Woody Rousseau was a detective. Now, I'm in 1920. And um, we weren't involved at school, but uh, he, he was a little bit of an outsider in a way, and um, I sort of liked him somehow, Booty. I always had a straight connection with him, Afrikaner. Probably French Huguenot, I suppose, with that name, yeah. And one day I'm standing on the corner of Adley Street, the middle of Cape Town, and Booty, on a Vespa, pulls up next to me, looks away into the far distance, making out as if he's not talking to me or something. He says, 
Weren't you thinking of leaving South Africa, Rakoff? Yeah, booty? Ten days. Get out in ten days. I went up to the meeting of the group that I belong to. And I said, listen, one of us is a spy. I would, and then I thought, how am I going to do this? I don't have a passport. My father won't sign for one. Um, and, uh, and they're closing in. And I've done lots of stuff. You know, well, we, I belong to a group that was planning to do lots of It was a you know, committed Trotskyite subversive. In, in mostly um, Cape Colored. Some of them were teaching school, but then there was a chap who was a tailor, and there was Sybil, and a couple of Kosa, Kosa people. You see, the one was my closest friend who led the group. And he says, look, we've got a spy. And we knew who it was. And uh, you've got to get out of the country. Because being white, I, I was a dangerous profile. And being the sort of character I was. I mean, it was because of the group that I became less violent. And uh, gave up my gun and things like that. After I nearly shot somebody at a party in the Malay Quarter and uh, this, my, our leader, Makanda, who I just found out recently died, he, um, I, I reached him, I had a shoulder holster and I was going to shoot this guy for using a racist terminology to me. And uh, Makanda said the unforgettable words, you shoot, we pay. So, um, I didn't. And then I got rid of the gun. Bruno had given me the gun as well. So, and then he ended up running a restaurant, a steakhouse in Seapoint. And, um, I used to sneak in with all the various members of my group so that he could serve us lavish meals after hour in the semi-dark. It was amazing how supportive he was. And, and there was another friend of mine, again an Afrikaner, who was the art critic. And um, I used to take friends for meals there. I remember one night he was shrieking out in the street saying, I hate apartheid. And he worked for De Burger, which is the intellectual Afrikaans uh, newspaper, which um, we didn't take that at home. We took the Lunds De Lundstem, which is slightly more liberal. But this is, this is the heavyweight. It, it was, I suppose, the most intellectual newspaper. And Andre was an outrageous hysteric. Well, he was very good looking, very tall, and um, always wore rose or something like whatever it was that um, Bosey um, 
of Oscar Wilde War or Oscar Wilde, I don't know, something like that. And this was, a, you know, his was a world of high camp and um, Afrikaners tended to love that sort of thing and my mother adored him and uh, my father didn't like him. <laughs> and uh, I came in and I said, listen, um, I've got a problem. I went into his office. I told him my situation and that, um, that's right, I was going to go to Portugal, I think, because I found out I could get on to, might be able to get on to Burgesses. No, you're not. You're coming, going to England and I'm coming with you. <laughs> <laughs> and so we came off to England. So he got, he says, give me all her papers, went and introduced me to the editor, a sort of a bawling, prosaic Afrikaner. <laughs> this is my friend Ian, who I hold in very high regard, or something like that. He's from the cultural side of things, the little theatre sort of thing. And uh, I mean, because Ian was quite a, he made a little niche for himself as art critic. And um, We were on a, within 10 days, we were on a Union boat, the mail boat. We went over because, uh, it, was, it was all managed, it was, I tell you this and I still find just the logistics of it all. <laughs> I mean, and I think, am I exaggerating? Am I, and I think of the Captain Marvel story, no, I'm not. You know, that's the way it was. That's the way it did. So anyhow, that's that's what all this this thing I read you was about. So I think it all sort of hangs together. And finally, of course, the astonishing thing is that I've lived a life which is very personal. So in this next section, we spoke to Ian particularly about his work on The Prisoner. He began as an assistant editor working with John Smith on two episodes. It was first The General and then It's Your Funeral. And it was after that that he ended up writing the episode Living in Harmony. And in Ian's book Inside the Prisoner, Radical Television and Film in the 1960s, he recounts in great detail how a lot of the events took place that he came to end up writing an episode of The Prisoner. Uh, so just to give you a bit of background before we get into the chat, Ian turned in Do Not Forsake Me On My Darling, which would go on to be living in harmony. After he put these scripts into McGowan, he went for a meeting with him. He turned up at his office at the appointed time and waited and waited and waited for <laughs> hours. And when finally McGowan arrived, he seemed very, very angry and preoccupied with something. And when he finally invited Ian into his office, what followed was an extremely strange and to Ian quite frightening two hours where Ian thought that he was there to talk about the scripts, but McGowan was clearly very angered by something and spent a lot of time 
ranting and raving. He ranted about Lou Grade and his apparent interference in the show. He ranted about George Markstein. When he did talk about Ian's writing, he was saying incomprehensible things, um, banging on a briefcase and thumping a bottle of mineral water on the table, telling Ian that that's what he should be writing about. He should be writing about this briefcase. He should be writing about this bottle of water. Um, Ian describes it as being a very frightening experience. I mean, McGoom's obviously a very big, quite intimidating guy. And for a large part of it, Ian was figuring out whether or not he could make a run for the door <laughs> and just get out of there because it was so frightening. Uh, but after this two-hour sort of bizarre interrogation of him, when he went to leave, McGoon said, oh yeah, so we're going to write the Western then, aren't we? There's a contract waiting for you outside with my secretary. And and that was it. <laughs> so he ended up coming on board to write the Western based on the script that he had turned in. So Ian's told this story quite a few times, he does make reference to that interview in this conversation, so we felt it was important to give the background by telling the story that Ian has told quite a few times before of what happened to him in McGowan's office that day in order to make sense of some of the, the conversation that we're, we're going to have with Ian now. And that transitions also into discussing his time working with Lindsay Anderson, who was a legend of British film. Uh, most notably, Ian worked extensively on the films If and Oh Lucky Man. And so uh, we got the chance to talk a little bit about his time beyond The Prisoner and how there were many other facets to his uh, career in film. I mean, I mean, basically, I think McGowan flipped over me, despite the horror that he inflicted on me. I think he uh, he was just surrounded by jobbers, with maybe the except with the one exception of George Markstein, who was a thinker, whatever he was. But you came to the prisoner working as an assistant editor alongside John Smith, and so that was with the general, and it's your funeral, or was it before that? It's your funeral and the general. Yeah. I worked on. And the reason I, I, the job happened is John Smith just stopped work and started saying to, um, talking as if I wasn't in the room, to McGowan and saying, now I heard you were looking for, for writers in this new thing. Well, you know, Ian has just got a very important grant to make a film, um, which he wrote, I don't know if the name Lindsay came into it or not, but they certainly didn't like each other. They had one, uh, they met once, and because Lindsay, I think, was wanted him for a lead in something at the Royal Court. So they met in the pub, as people do, around the corner from the Royal Court, and uh, nothing came of it. And did they ever speak of each other? Uh, McGoon never spoke to me of Lindsay, but Lindsay, I obviously got him to see some of the prisoner and all that, and he, he fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> And he said, I've got to forget about that. 
because that's just, you know, television stuff. And there was quite a um, um, difference between people that worked on television and in film. And still, it's still a bit like that, but not, you know, whereas television was basically much more corporate and ordered. And um, I always felt that the film industry was less racist, quite honestly, and more liberal, humane. And that's why, I mean, McGowan wanted, was making feature films. And um, the budgets reflected that too. When you first started editing on The Prisoner, which was presumably um, the general would have been the earliest episode, did you know very much about the show and the idea behind it? The ethos, no, no. I uh, And John Smith knew nothing either. God. And the one before, the job we did before, um, I hadn't met John and he phoned me up to um, offer me a job. I said, John, I, you know, you sound like a good guy and I'd really like it and I really want the job, but I've got a broken leg in plaster. Oh, Ian, don't worry about that. We'll work around that. I mean, he's that sort of person who didn't, you know, he's a very tall fellow, nearly as tall as McGowan, I think, or tall, you know, the same. And um, so uh, he says, Ian, it's a musical. That's all I know. And then he found out some, some more about it. Children's musical. It's from Moral Rearmament. And I said, oh, God, yes, yes, I've heard of them. Especially white colonials were very supportive of that. And I imagine a, a lot of Pakasaibs in India would have been supportive of moral rearmament. A very Christian organization and supposedly very morally conscious, but just slightly to the right of Attila the Hun, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I mean, we, we, we had a lovely time working on it, you know. And, uh, Oh, I'd met some of them before. So uh, that's right, one of the bigwigs. Because I was w working on um, COI, Central Office of Information, which was, um, a, I don't know what it was, a government body. And they like sent a film every month a newsletter film across Africa and then another one across the empire. So, uh, you know, so it was just like a few days work and I got a month's salary, something like that. And it was uh, part of the people in control. I remember one of them was, a, I was warned, was a very fervent moral rearmament person and um, he said some funny things to me but um, you know I didn't have to have dealings with him and it was just you know we chopped the news up and shipped it out. When you first started um, working on, on the episodes of The Prisoner that you were editing what was your first impression of it as a show? Ah. Right. 
I was intrigued, but unfortunately, the general and Etchel funeral were rubbish. <laughs> I mean, the sets wobbled, the everything about it, and it was. I mean, John and I were like, we thought this would be something interesting, which happened for him after I left, because he cut Dance of the Dead, and that was a proper piece of work. But I'm afraid I was a Darren Nesbitt. I could stand. I can. I thought he's just a bit of a ponce. I think is the word I would have used back then. Uh, chewing his glasses and like, I just didn't feel he belonged there. That that was the was it the general, or it's your I don't it's know. Your, it's your funeral. Sorry? It's your funeral. It's your funeral, yeah. I mean, they were diabolical, those films. But John's very good at that sort of thing, squeezing death out of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, then, and, uh, as I said, one evening at work, uh, he, he just told my girl all about that. And um, I was put something in for him to read. He uh, could read the um, thing I did um, for the grant. So how did you come to pitch the idea of uh, a Western-themed episode for the prisoner? Well, I'm sort of a bit hazy, but um, have you read my book, by the way? You read my interview with McGowan. Which I, I don't have the energy to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's high drama. That's quite, uh, oh, Alex Cox came over to me, um, cause he used my book a lot in the, I thought his book's very good actually. But I mean, most of the stuff I find unreadable. They're just reenacting what they've seen in front of a television set. And, um, I mean, he just does that a bit, Cox, but he's a creative thinker, and that's all there is to it. And I just read it in one go, I'm delighted to say. Yeah, and was short. <laughs> that's a, But um, I had this horrible experience, um, interview with McGowan. At the end of it, he said, um, would you like... Um, to write the Western, a Western for me. I said, sure. He says, the, the contract's waiting outside for you. And Roger, the one-eyed secretary, <laughs> what's, what was the name? Rover was the, the balloon. Yeah, Roger was the secretary. <laughs> I, I get them mixed up sometimes. <laughs> and... Um, well, he went berserk and hated it and all that, and then wanted me, and then I just went off and read a Gene Autry comic and said, right, that's the gist of that's living in harmony, and it's from that Gene Autry story, which I did, and um, I... Uh, Wrote it, had a few sessions, I think, with McGurn, and he just 
I don't know, somehow vetted what I did. I can't really remember accurately what I wrote and what... But then, then he had to go to Hollywood and um, he said he's sorry, very meek. Any time I saw him meek and apologetic, I'm going to let you down because, you know, the agreement was we were going to write together. He says, um, I'm going to leave you in good hands. The good hands were the hands of a strangler. <laughs> I mean, it was ludicrous. I mean, what a self-serving bully. Uh, he was a drinking buddy of McGurns. I think that's what it added up to. Anyhow, so I had a, a few meetings with McGurn, then a few meetings with Tomlin. And I said, how long is this going to go on for? He says, well, I've got most of it now. I mean, if you want to fuck off uh, or something. Yeah, I said, yeah, but I, I haven't got my last payment. Oh, don't worry, don't worry. I'll give it to you here now, mine. I'll pay, I'll pay you. And um, just one thing, um, give me the residuals. So I said, what are residuals? He says, that's the money this series is never going to make. I says, yeah, okay. And I suppose contractually I should have had um, full writing credit. But um, uh, not him. It was extraordinary. He produced it, he directed it. Um, everything. He originated it. I can't believe he read that Gene Autry. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think he had the intellect to, to have a, a concept such as, you know, feeding it into the mind. The only thing that bugs me a lot is, in all honesty, I can't remember whether it was him or me who devised the cardboard cutouts because that was really good. Pause. <laughs> I want a glass of water now. So notably, you know, in, in the episode, you get a, a co-story by credit. Originated um, by, yeah. And, uh, and David Tomlin gets the, the three-part written, produced, directed by. Was there ever a, any discussion about how that would play out? Or, or did no. you go and have any input at all? On, no, on no, I had nothing to do. And when, he, when I, he showed, invited me to a screening, I thought, I thought he'd probably just eradicate my name because I felt he was such a power-mad creature. You know, and then at the end of the screening, I said, um, is McGoon in his office? He says, yes, but you can't see him. And he like stood in front of me. I was like trying to move the mountain. I just um, couldn't get to McGoon. And then when I was in LA years, so many years later, I interviewed uh, Alex Lexus Canner. 
in the late hours, and he arranged for me to join him when he was having lunch with McGowan. And of course, I was on a big feature film, and I just was unfortunately too diligent to take the time off. So um, I've often been a victim of diligence in my life. <laughs> but your, um, although there is a, you know, a writing credit for for David Tomlin, I mean the strong elements of your original script still still made it to screen. Oh no no no! Mm. I think most of it was what I did. Mm. No no, without a doubt. Yeah. You know, I just, uh, I mean, I do remember I didn't write it down where I had the chap stubbing his cigar out on the guy's neck. And there were a few things that I said, maybe a bit too tough for you or something, but, and, uh, you know, and I had a female interest in, uh, which I remember Sloman or Eric Mival, one of them, was saying, oh, you you won't get McGoon drinking, and you won't uh, get him with women, etc. And of course, it did both in my episode. I was freaked when I saw it um, because of the sadism in it. That was massive. Now I think that probably is was the cut that went on television the first time and then was cut back. I'm just guessing because a kid hanged himself and the father, I don't know, was it Bonanza and the prisoner or was it Bonanza? Somebody was hanged in it and yeah, I mean, I mean, actually Tomlin said, let's listen, the script's there. You don't, you really don't need to do anything more on it. Well, he was speaking the truth. <laughs> <laughs> if the show had continued, would you have um, oh, liked, yes, to, yeah. liked to contribute more stories? Uh, uh, McGoon said, I want you to do four scripts. So, you know, obviously he couldn't just think about me. But I wonder if they ever must have had a conversation about me. And I have no idea how it went. I mean, I could imagine Tomlin saying, ah, oh, well, he just lost interest. So I had to get rid of him or something. It's quite possible. I mean, that's, you know, if you're making up a profile of what I... Actually, uh, Rupert's promised to give me some uh, films of uh, interviews with Tomlin that I, I'm quite keen to see. And see how my memory plays up. It's like the Captain Marvel story. It, it can't be as pat as as I seem to think it is, but it probably is. And He's not a nice person. I mean, really, a jobber, and a, you know, became the highest paid assistant director in the world, or something like that. No, you wouldn't have met Magu um, Tomlin. No, no, no. He's he's been dead quite a while. Oh, he was dead when I met him. <laughs> <laughs> did 
did you think that The Prisoner was a show that could take advantage of the fact that it could it could switch into a different genre every week if it wanted to and still keep the the ethos constant in, in episodes? Well, it didn't succeed. You know, I mean... There wasn't a, an intellectual veritas in each episode because most of those writers were second rate. But between McGowan and Markstein, I think a lot of them did the best work they'd ever done. I suspect, I mean, because some of the stuff is fantastic. You know, I mean, all that stuff with Leo McKern and... And McGoon, you know, wrote well. That was the whole appeal of me going on to it because I was mesmerised by the series and I felt <coughs> very few of the people on it had a clue. Did McGoon enter the cutting room a lot when you were Yes, 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 he did. And I think he came particularly because he was so comfortable with John and I and that I don't remember... I don't think he spent that long with the others. And uh, he'd just, just come with his drink and and just, like, unwind. You know, even not have to do and say much. So it, it must have been pretty therapeutic for him, really. And, and, and that was, well, it's the way John and I worked. I mean, it wasn't boss and servant. You know, John was a, he was a pal. And and he said, look, Ian, you're not like us. I mean, I'm a jobber. And all these people working here are jobbers. And there's a difference. But I wonder if I, if it did come up about me and Lindsay See, I'm not sure when that he would have been told Lindsay had worked on that script and got me. Basically, it got the, I think I got the grant because of um, people knew I I was so involved with Lindsay. Anyhow, I had a fight with Lindsay over that. I had many fights with Lindsay. I had no intention of being a film director. It's the last thing in the world that I wanted. But um, he said, I had to do it. I said, you can do it. You've uh, written more or less half of it anyway. And actually, it was the best, best collaboration I ever had with him. Although I've collaborated on monumental films. But actually, working with writers, I don't think he was very good. But... Um, I mean, there must have been something about what Lindsay saw in me and what McGowan saw in me, really. And uh, although I, I, I was very... I wouldn't talk about my political background or anything about South Africa. I was still in those days terrified that the police were, were, were going to come for me. You know, because they reached far and wide especially in London.
have you seen any of the um, work that first Gil Kane and then also Jack Kirby did when they started creating a comic based on The Prisoner um, that never oh, came yes, yes, out at the time? But it's been I thought um, Titan was going to publish all that. Yeah, that's just come out. Just, Is it out yeah, already? Yeah. It's a beautiful oh. book, actually. Is it? Yeah. And it co- so it collects the uh, two alternative takes on uh, Arrival. The Kirby one and the Steve Englehart and Gil Kane version. Gil Kane. Um, in very, you I know, liked in, him very much. In large format. Um, and it's just interesting to see how, you know, how they interpreted it, but also there's a big sort of what if over, you know, what if one or both series had actually continued to see how they would have, you know, used Arrival as an issue one. But actually, uh, certainly Jack Kirby would be interesting to see how he would have taken the prisoner in a in an interesting direction in comic book form. I was asked to write the introduction to that. And then suddenly I heard it's coming out. I said, what about my um, um, doing the... Oh, no, we decided we had to do it for a, uh, with a comic book person. Well, what am I doing? I'm rambling. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's what we spend half of our podcast doing, mm-hmm. is, right, is rambling ourselves. <laughs> Well, I've been fairly focused, really. Mm-hmm. But that thing that I wrote about South Africa could be the prisoner. Mm-hmm. And so it validates or verifies what I'm saying, I've said, not to you, but I was perfectly groomed for it. Mm-hmm. And that's probably what uh, McGowan picked up on from me. Because mm-hmm. I didn't, I can't remember our, our conversations, I can just hear him ranting. <laughs> I think that's why, of all the um, many things that you've you've been involved with as an editor um, and as a writer over the years, the prisoner is something that people continue to ask you about, even though it's been half a century since it was on TV. Yeah, well, Lindsay Anderson. I mean, I saw a film the other night, Cold War, um, chap who made Ida. Anyhow, Lindsay was loved in Eastern Europe. He got much more of the sort of attention he wanted there than in this country. And, uh, you know, I, I met, uh, I had lunch or meal with Milos at one stage when I was cutting Stephen Frears' first film. The they were, the, oh yes, yeah. oh you know about that. Yeah. Ah, ah. <laughs> You've done your research, haven't you? <laughs> I mean, I can't stand. I remember this one chap who said, "Look, I want an introduction to Lindsay Anderson, uh, editor or something." And I think he booked a flight to go to America because they heard Lindsay was going to be on it. Because I said, "Well, what have you seen of Lindsay's? What do you know of Lindsay?" And he knew nothing. It was just like a big deal name. And so I said, "I can't introduce you if you." Lindsay will freak if you haven't. Uh... Mind you, it was destined for hatred when I first met him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're credited. I mean, you're credited as an uh, assistant editor on no on if oh on if on if, but you did so much more in that. I mean, the thing is, I was offered a bigger credit, a proper credit. 
because I had done so much more. I mean, in the last six months was just Lindsay and I. I fired everybody. And then Sue came in to help us for a day. I got her in. I said to Lindsay, she's coming to work for us. She says, well, you and I can just finish the film. We're doing fine, you know. Just, I said, you might be doing fine. I am fed up with being alone with you all the time and nobody being good enough. And Sue was the first person that has crossed the threshold that you like and get on with. Oh, all right, don't make such a fuss about it. And that's how she came to work with us for the next three months and still the high point of her, our history those three months and just being with Lindsay. But I couldn't um, take a credit, bigger credit, because we were, we had just got the title sorted. And um, we were racing to get a West End opening so that we could submit for Cannes. And I said, Lindsay, we're not going to make our dates. If I take a, because it was all one long rolling credit and it was just, you know, I, it was too late in the day. So I just said, forget it. What could I have done? I ruined, wrecked the film? No, I mean, because it, uh, I think we'd shot, and that was the days of opticals. And it took like 14 major works to get that right. And we did, but um, I, I, I just had to accept it, you know. But obviously it would have affected my career tremendously if I uh, got a proper credit. I hired the, the editor. I fired the editor. It was a safe pair of hands. And I consequently brought him on to Oh Lucky Man as well. And this chap, all the best things he'd done were because of me. And he smoldered with resentment. Because everywhere I was there, you know. Um, and, uh, I mean, Lindsay, I remember one I was standing on the top of a ladder in the cutting room doing something. I've been quite quiet today. <laughs> and um, Lindsay, there were some producers or some big, big wheels because he hung out in the cutting room all the time, which everybody hated and I loved. And um, I'm up the ladder and I'm not even listening to the conversation. And then, and, and somebody asked Lindsay a question. He said, Oh my God, Ian, explain it to them. And of course I could. Exactly what the meaning of that one line in, you know, in the film, you know, it was like a politicized concept. Eight minutes is a long time. I remember that. That was the, uh, thing. But, um, yeah. And everybody, of course, I was so, people so wanted to know me because 
to get to Lindsay. Amazing, just... Um, and of course it gave me tremendous confidence, I must have had, that I'm working for the best film being made in the country. But I felt that a few times, in a way, something like Deliverance, I felt was a, a remarkably substantial piece of work. Whereas the um, Bob Altman film wasn't. That was a bit of a fiasco. I remember my, I had a very, um, it's not quite the same league as the Magoon interview, but I had a very strange one on Oh Lucky Man, which is the film I've probably worked the longest on, and I've got no credit whatsoever. I mean, and that was amazing, sort of my education on that. But anyhow, I'm working for Bob Altman, and uh, I get a call from the production supervisor on Lindsay's film, Oh Lucky Man. And so I go into for this, you know, obviously job interview, and I think, but. You know, it's about three months away. Yes, but Lindsay wants you on right away. Oh. Oh, oh, all right. Yes, he wants you to research uh, some material that we're going to need about Africa. So, so. so we want you just come start as an assistant editor, um, you know, First assistant editor or something. Um, Scott. So, he said, how much money do you want? So I told him. She said, that's ridiculous. No assistant editor gets that amount. This is what you're going to earn. And hands me a piece of paper. And it's more than what I asked for. <laughs> and I said, what's this about? His name was Basil Keyes. And his wife was a very big music lady. I mean, an agent or something, film music. And he says, I know all about you and Lindsay. I don't want you as my enemy. <laughs> and indeed, we became... Uh, and he was... Very unusual for um, that sort of job, production manager, production, and he was like a colonel almost, <laughs> semi-retired. And, uh, and then yeah, I was, uh, oh, he became very good friends. Yes, I remember he, he tried to buy that uh, cradle off me <laughs> 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 when the fire was on here. Yes, and so no, I had a long saga on Oh Lucky Man. Well, because I walked out on it after a year. I mean, because I wanted a credit as a writer. And he says, you're not going to get a credit as a writer, because I wrote a very substantial scene in it, because our writer, David Sherwin, was Dulali squashed up between um, barley wines and what was the, the 
the pools, I can't remember the name now, of choice in those days. Was not like, well, not ecstasy or anything like that long before that, but what was it? Again, takes days to retrieve things sometimes. <laughs> but I've been around a bit, I've <laughs> accumulated quite a bit. I'm good on comics. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's how I got to work for Lindsay, and then I left him and didn't see him, had no dealings with him for about two years, and the phone rings, it's all your fucking fault. <laughs> Hello, Lindsay. <laughs> yes, well, those dopes you left behind when you walked out can't do anything. And they are useless, like all those cutting room people. And um, Warner Brothers promised me that uh, we could um, re- Introduce, we, we'd remove 10 minutes or 12 minutes, more than a reel, I think, uh, or less than a reel, a reel, um, from the film, and they promised I could re resurrect it, or re reconstitute it, was the word. So I was engaged to do the reconstituted version. And once again, it was just Lindsay and I. Nobody else. We had breakfast together. We had lunch together. We had supper together. We went to films together. We argued and fought all the way. And it went on. It was a wonderful, happy period. Because we weren't answerable to anybody. And we just tried to find all this lost material. And... Um, One day, Paul Hitchcock, the head of production, Warner Brothers here, calls me and says, Ian, we agreed to Lindsay that he could spend a few thousand pounds. And, um, you know, have you any idea of the kind of money you've spent? I said, no, it's got nothing to do with me. I mean, yeah, I, I do things, you know. He says, well, I said, well, why don't you just fire me? He says, are you mad? <laughs> what would Lindsay say? <laughs> I said, no, listen, anyhow, it's what, about eight months now, um, for a few weeks. <laughs> and, and I got very well paid, and we had a cutting room in Soho where the Beatles were, and that set up there. You know, where the Beatles came. No, where the Beatles were before. Yeah. And I had worked for the COI there. It was just free, like freelance occupation of a cutting room. So I said, okay, well, don't panic. Look, we're going to finish off soon. I'm going to finish this soon. I promise you, Paul. <laughs> And um, 
Indeed, we finished off. We got the dubbing done and everything. And, you know, of course, along the way, Lindsay wanted to add a few things here and there, you know. So, um, so I edited the reconstituted version, as it's called, but not a hint of credit. So there's been a lot of um, strange credit deprivation in my history. <laughs> and things falling through, like oh, Nick with... Um, that was a shocker. Don't look now. Of course, I still see Nick. Because we, we were really pals. I mean, we had a lot in common. And there was a, a scandal he was on the periphery of. And a scandal I was on the periphery of. And that's right, when I went for my uh, interview, would have been after if. I went for two, I, somebody, t oh, I remember it was Paul Joyce, the director. He worked for Memorial. And all, a lot of my history revolved around Memorial, which is Albert Finney's company, who wanted to back me in a comic book once. But, um, no, I was too busy with the editing and all that. Um, and uh, Paul Joyce said, look, Nick Rogue is looking for a editor and we think, uh, I think you'd be spot on. I said, well, yes. I very much would like to meet Nick Rogue because he's a friend of some friends of mine. And these friends of mine Do you ever hear of the Profumer affair? <laughs> <laughs> I can say all this, I don't can I? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose so. Um the Sugdens were a couple who lived in South Kensington. Teddy was about in his eighties. And Catherine was 32, I think, in the 30s. And there, decadent posh. I mean, and they liked my, my girlfriend because she was very privileged English. They, it, it fitted in with, uh, not that she saw or I saw, what was going on there because they just I was much younger they just protected me and there was that's right Al Mulock lived with them and Al Mulock was an actor um, who I met in South Africa on the the Hellions that was the bunch of people that went on to make the Bond films and so I Worked on the Hellions, yeah. Met um, uh, Al Mulock. He was in some of the spaghetti was it westerns. He had an incredible face, and I think it's a fifth trillion dollars more. 
It's one of the biggest close-ups I've ever seen. But he was shot within the first reel, and he didn't get further than that. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, they... I used to go around the morning after the parties, where all the debris was there, and they had these massive parties all the time. And once I went to one of their parties, and it was Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis were there. And, um, and I was ushered away from some woman, I remember, whose husband was the ambassador, English. They, Catherine took me there. They just, it was, the thing is, Ian's very young, I suppose, and just an innocent colonial or something, God, God alone knows why, but they were very protective to me. Then Teddy asked me to cut, he'd been making amateur films of reptiles. And he had a back room in the flat, it was a giant flat, which had uh, cabinets with reptiles in them. It was a bit creepy, really. Anyhow, so they, they just sort of adopted me, and they kept on saying to me, you must meet Nico, she called him Nico, which is Nick Rogue. I, um, so anyhow, I was really keen. And they used to go for weekend parties at a place called Cliveden, which is some Lord Astor or something. Or, uh, I never went there. I was never incorporated in any shenanigans. <laughs> But I saw pictures of them all sort of sunning on the rocks and what have you. And so it was a very um, raunchy world that they were, and I, so I ended up cutting this film for Teddy, an amateur, you see. Um, you know, and Catherine drove me around everywhere and uh, what have you. So I went for this interview in uh, Cricklewood, Samuelson's, uh, a hiring company where Nick had this film and um, on Glastonbury, it was the first Glastonbury. And um, he, he was um, interviewing me and he got me, he didn't want the producer, he just wanted to talk to me because obviously we had lots in common. I mean, nobody in the film industry would get pally with people like Suggertons. I mean, you know, that was like a level of decadence that would be beyond the ken of most film people. And I asked Nick why he never made the film on Scandal. He says, oh, they were too, we were too close. Which I thought was a pretty naff answer. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, so the producer, he came out onto the patio at the back of this like industrial wasteland looking over Cricklewood, a really uh, depressing area. You live in Cricklewood, don't you? <laughs> 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 and... Um, we just talked. I remember he was, he had uh, jeans on and a blue shirt 
and Nick was very good looking and very stylish and um and at ease and he and he was as i say i think he's the most sensual filmmaker ever to appear in this country you know and he was quite a sensualist and i met his first wife and she was a dream and just such a nice person that's right they used to live in ox oxford and cambridge mansions just off um, Mary Van Hyro, that area there. Anyway, Cy Litvinov. He owned actually, um, what was the Kubrick film? Yes, the, the one that Malcolm did, uh, Clockwork Orange. He owned the rights to that. I think. He owned the rights to a lot of things. He was an LA lawyer and a real sharpie. And he didn't like me, straight off. I became his best friend eventually. But uh, <laughs> anyway, and his son had the same name as me. And he lived in Chelsea. Um, I used to go visit him. Yeah, strangely, from being a horror. So he said, what are your credits? I want to know what your credits are before we can think of employing you. And Nick said, I don't need to know this chap's credits. He's the man who's going to cut out films. And so, uh, could you just leave us alone? And uh, that was it. And uh, yeah, so they had all this material on Glastonbury, and they'd it had been chopped together chopped by a fucking butcher and I said look if you want me to touch anything you've got to rejoin everything back to Russia's that's two extra weeks on the budget I said yeah tough but there's no point I mean otherwise get somebody else but I'm not going to faff around because uh, I have no idea what there is. I can't just look at outtakes, that sort of thing. And so, so I said, this is unheard of or something. And Nick said, if Ian says that, we do it. There were two assistants who uh, were full-time there. And I don't know who edited it. I think the one assistant thought he was going to edit it. Joe Gans, Joe Gannon, Joe Gannon. I'm not doing badly. Remembering, I mean, you know, <laughs> who tried to get Nick to fire me because he thought he was Nick's best pal. And so Nick said, well, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> and fired him on the spot. And then he followed in my footsteps elsewhere, but that's too long and totally different story. So, anyhow, that's, um, yeah, well, you've got a portrait of the way I got jobs, which I think was the initial question. But, um, of course, eventually I fired on O Lucky Man, uh, Basil Keys, <laughs> and, the, and the executive editor, I remember, 
on if uh, Roy Baird, I uh, came into the room one day, he's uh, the, in Memorial Films, he's executive office, and I came in, he says, oh, don't say a word, I know, I'm already packed, you can see, I'm, I'm going, I'm going. <laughs> Lindsay's Hatchet Boy. <laughs> Anyhow, I was going to tell you uh, one story, um, which apparently Malcolm was quoting in all his lectures that he did on a tour of America. The end shot of If was a fiasco. I mean, Lindsay said, we just have to do it again. We have to get Malcolm in. We've got, we're going to do it at Twickenham. We've got to have the set rebuilt, yeah, or an imitation of it, and um, so on and so forth. I said, Lindsay, it's not necessary. And I showed him a bit of film that was that long. And that had the smile, exactly. I said, you're not going to get it again. And uh, Lindsay said, don't be ridiculous. What can you do with that? I said, I can print it optically back and forth, endlessly. And it's going, he says, but all this smoke from the gun, it's not going to work. Don't, this is an order. Don't do it. Don't waste more money. Fine, Lindsay. So, of course, I left him and I went and ordered it optically. But, and kept quiet about it. He, uh, the set was built. Miroslav Ondracek was, now was this after the, I can't, I can't figure out the logistics of it. Was Mirik in Czechoslovakia when the tanks came in, rolled in? It was all 1968, you see. And, um, they shot it. Miroslav came over, whole, had a whole unit. Spent, I think, three days shooting, reshooting, reshooting. And I think it was Lindsay, the producer, and myself just viewed the rushes. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Dark moment. <laughs> I said, hang on. Signal the projectionist and uh, projected what uh, the optical I'd made, you couldn't tell anything, and it worked. And that was put into the film, it was the last shot. And um, did I get a thank you? No. <laughs> Didn't even get a credit on the film. But anyway, um, that was one of the smartest things I think I ever did. Being one of the 
were the only people who actually was behind the scenes and was able to have a story reach reach a screen um, in the prison. Did you did you ever wonder whether your career would be more as a writer over being an editor, or would it well, always encapsulate both? No, it did come up later, much later, but at that stage, I mean, I got an agent and sort of looked around, uh, got me some offers or something and didn't offer, but I just felt um, that was the best that television had to offer and nothing that I touched on could compare. And so, you know, whereas Lindsay Anderson was a serious filmmaker. So, you know, that's where I belonged. And, uh, and that's where I went. Indeed. Did you always have a, a unique eye, do you think, for, for being able to be an editor, given that you had an interest in comics growing up? I mean, there's a parallel... Well, there is, is it frame, frame by frame. I use the word frame. In comics, I use the word panel, which I don't. <laughs> um, it's subconsciously, really, in the way that, well, I mean, the Captain Marvel thing I cite, um, that's conscious. I mean, I could have been reading Kafka or... Uh, you know, Tolstoy, and come away with something that I thought might have been relevant to South Africa, but there wasn't. You know, it's, it's, it was just, for me, monumental. Great, one of the greatest artists ever. The master of the clear line, a bit more significant for me than Tintin. <laughs> and, uh, Oh, uh, there's now some assaults going on. His name was C.C. C. Beck um, about racism in comics. I mean, he did a lot of stereotype stuff, which is everybody's sort of suddenly discovering, but it was always there. I've got some examples of the 40s. But nothing with the content as dubious as Herge on the race level. Jose later said that he, you know, he felt bad about it. He would try and yeah, he, and he had would some... try and correct it in some way, or, you know, and you know, and it was a it was a product potentially of the of the colonial attitudes of the time. I hate um, that yeah, when I hear yeah. that. I'm afraid. Yeah. Yeah. Well. I mean, I, I just can't get off on uh, Tintin, which applies to most of America. It just never took off there, excepting for Spielberg's idiocy. I don't know if you saw that, Tintin. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> I don't know how he managed. How anybody could manage to... I don't know, I, I'll just... I'll read Tintin. But... Um, I've never been able to give it high regard. So I noticed earlier on your um, on your bookshelf you had a collection of Love and Rockets comics. Oh yes, yes. Sorry, I was uh, we were talking about that. Uh, well, I've got the 
the Gilbert Hernandez novellas or whatever they called novels, um, I read those avidly. And even more, I was happier, or more pleased with those than I was with uh, Love and Rockets. They're just terrifyingly good. I mean, and I mean all that stuff about the the child stuff, you know, and yet it's such a sort of a broad, encompassing sense of humanity that comes through in even that. But the whole mixture of people, and I especially preferred it in black and white, quite honestly, which is also probably made it more popular because the race thing is not so obvious. So prejudice couldn't slip in the way it... The introduction to that, the first or second Tarzan, by um, Gilbert Hernandez. When he, uh, he read Jesse Marsh, he thought Tarzan, he thought he was Hispanic. And we all were reading it with, is the word equanimity? Black and white, you know, the kids the way we loved. And it was that Tarzan that we liked. So, I mean, you know, obviously, in what I'm writing, there's a, an attempt to clarify the political sensibility of growing up in uh, that racist environment. I don't know, I just find my own history very strange. And I just feel I was perfectly equipped for the prisoner. Which obviously McGowan felt and uh, and Lindsay felt in the way that uh, well, I suppose I was because I was sickly. I was forced um, to be politicised from a very young age, and things that affected me didn't affect my brother. You worked with some. Tremendous filmmakers. Oh yes, yes. Um, so I mean, Lindsay Anderson, you've mentioned Jan Trull. You worked with John Borman, you know Nick Rogue. Working with such greats. I mean, did you did you feel that you wanted to and you had the ability to choose what projects you would work on, and also what ones, if you wanted to, you could walk away from? They found me. I was on a, my friend Sue, who lives in North Devon, and she um, she married Hugh Hudson, just for the record. But we were in the cutting rooms together for years, and neither of us ever, freelancers, ever looked for a job. I mean, I don't know anybody else, well, except in top editors, sort of thing, but just as uh, top assistance. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, I, I was on the circuit. I mean, I'd meet John Boorman and his wife was impressed by Lindsay at the time and, you know, sort of, um, 
I mean, but we didn't, we weren't jobber assistants even. And editors didn't socially move. Uh, Sue's very pretty and very bright. Now, a bit older, but uh, still trying to make a film now. Just got some money and um, did has been painting for years and now wants to go back to her roots because her grandmother was a fairly famous Scottish artist who she sort of hid from, you know, and in the categories, didn't want anything to do with art and painting and drawing. But then she divorced you and, well, even before that, she um, uh, wanted to be, uh, go back to art. Went to art school for a bit. Yes, I remember she was telling me a story how she had to, she was at Byam Shores and she was going out, Ronald Reagan was coming over to see, was it Maggie then? Yeah, and so Sue got dressed in the taxi, changed in the taxi to then go have dinner at the high table because Hugh made uh, Chariots of Fire, which was quite a monumental success, really. I think that and Jaws are the two films in my lexicon that benefited most from wonderful music and that the music actually carried them both, like they were characters. That doesn't often happen. What do you consider as being, in some way you mentioned you know, music in that context, are there, are there specific films that you feel have been really made in, in the editing room that you've known about that, that without that influence of a strong editing well, team would have fallen apart? Um, Nick Rowe, who did Don't Look Now, which I was supposed to edit, and if you know that, not well. Two days before I'm set to fly off, I've even got my visa sorted and passport needed it in those days. Um, and he changed his mind because Julie Christie had a friend who uh, I wanted to edit it, and um, I could have gone on as assistant. But his name was Graham Clifford, who went on to become a director. He did Francis and a few things, and nothing monumental. But anyhow, um, I said, Nick, I just walked out on Graham Clifford on Bob the Bob Altman film uh, to go and work with Lindsay Anderson. We did, uh, he fell in love with me, that's why I took the job, and um, Bob wanted me. I just, you see, Bob had been told about me by uh, John Boorman when I was working, and so that's how that happened. And um, I said, I can't do it. Anyway, um, I uh, wouldn't turn Lindsay down. I didn't turn him down for the Beatles. I mean, I was doing a thing for Stephen Frears and Lindsay, 
And then the Beatle things came up and this friend of mine, who was the editor, wanted me as his assistant because he was a fairly straight Carnaby Street type chap. And he says, I know you will talk their language. You know, come and uh, it'll be great. <laughs> I said, yes, it's very tempting, but I, it's Stephen's first film, Frears, and I... I wouldn't do something like that. I didn't do things like that. By God, I was tempted. <laughs> <laughs> I say that. So in this final part, we spoke to Ian again about comic books, but more about how he built his collection and how that collection was something that stayed with him for a very long time until it transitioned into a very important location which was the Rakoff collection at the V&A and it's testament to how extensive and how important his lifelong collection is because it's one of the few collections which is housed alongside very important pieces of literature and art in the V&A as well. So he sold that collection to the V&A some years ago, but he's maintained a strong link there. He's been involved in giving a very well-received lecture series. He's involved in lots of aspects of discussing the social and cultural impact of comics uh, still. And the V&A also has hosted for a while um, a blog about his career from the perspective of his interest in comics. Yeah, and it's a really wonderful blog. So I'd urge you to go out and have a read. And it's it's also a testament to his abilities as a writer that that blog is so compelling um you, you start reading it and you just think my goodness someone should turn this into a movie this is incredible <laughs> so how did you build up such an extensive comic book collection over the decades did you have to travel a lot to find a lot of the old comics that you... <clears throat> yeah. I earned a lot of money editing films. 40% of it went um, on comics. I just didn't do anything else. You know, be mean with anything else, but put me at a convention. and uh, And in those days... <clears throat> there was a lot more material available, you know, and they were really dirt, relatively cheap and accessible. So I've got two collections in the V&A, you see. Uh, and the one really I never read in childhood, um, which is the romance comics from 1949 to 54. And they were the most literary that the culture has ever been. And they were stories about women that they just hadn't been before. And, um, I mean, there were a few newspaper strips of substance, but this was, it was almost like there were hardly any credits. And uh, it was like the wild, it was open territory. They just did all these stories and 
they just churned them out and like in 49 I think uh, there'd been a start with what I would define as romance comics and they went on and maybe there were 40 titles at the end of the year by 1954 there were 300 just titles and I got most of them in the collection and um, I mean, top artists uh, worked on them also Bob Powell did a lot of very sensual you know I mean but nothing salacious at all you know I mean but saying everything in a way in the way that good storytelling can and so it was and women came to work on comics there were some women it was still functionally uh, a male industry you know because the actual printing publishing and editing or whatever you call it was all um but trina robbins has written a bit about that so which is she's good and um and anyhow i built up this collection not so big as my other collection but and over the years i mean dealer dealers would well there was one of the biggest dealers would come in i think he still does really and stay at the Marriott in Swiss Cottage, and then you book a time, you know, and 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 you can move fairly freely in that time slot, just looking through thousands of comics, and then the the end of it he would go to the mart and sell them in public, but you were on his list, and. Um, well, I've got that on my blog, which is still up at the V&A, although it's not continuing. It's still there. And I had an American girlfriend who eventually I married, but I used to chase after her uh, in Portland, Oregon. And she'd arrange things very often before I came over. So... Um, you know, I so I'd try time it for a big convention. You know, when I, I usually had a deal in uh, most of my contracts that I get three days off work uh, without prejudice to buy comics. <laughs> you know, if, if there's a convention uh, nearby, I did with Lindsay. Yes, I remember that. led to um, your decision to give your comic collection to the V&A to become a sort of permanent collection there? I sold it actually and it was always my ambition. I was invited by John Walsh who then must have been the 70s 72, 73 John Walsh was um, the curator, senior curator for um, paintings in the Museum of Modern Art or something, European paintings. And he um, 
met me at a dinner. A friend of mine took me there for dinner. And actually, I wrote about this in one of my blogs. How um, it was quite late. And I said, um, well, I've got to go home now. I'm staying on the other side of the park. I mean, we were on the fancy east side, and I was on the west side, living with my, staying with my psychiatrist friend, Barry. And uh, they said, I will get you a taxi. I said, no, 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 I, I can't, I've seen it. It's just the other side of the park. I walk there. It's... The middle of the night, it's midwinter. In the daytime, nobody walks across Central Park. Are you mad? Excuse me. Spider-Man in the last episode <laughs> went through the park in the middle of the night. Why, well, Spider-Man can do it, I can. I set off. The park was a lot bigger than I thought. And it was snowing and it was grim. Two guys following me. Big guys. <laughs> I turn. They still follow me. I turn again. Follow me. Right. <laughs> Time for action. I can't let them catch me. I spin around and I pull my cap down, whatever, I had a woolly cap, put my hands in my pockets, and I had this large, I think it was a Dutch coat with giant pockets, big enough for comic books, you see. And I march at high speed, straight towards them. The guy stopped, turned, and ran for their lives. <laughs> <laughs> and you're... Your collection is now uh, the Rakoff collection. Yeah. At the VNA. Yeah, in the National Art Library, which is, um, you know, they've got things, it's there with the same treatment as the Dickens original manuscripts, the earliest, some of the earliest Shakespeare folios, Da Vinci's notebook, etc., etc. And um, they've all been properly, 16,000 comics, mm. they've all been properly catalogued, and not by me, and put into acid-free sleeves and boxes. And they're maintained under room-controlled temperature. Mm. And so you go into the library and you order something, you look at the catalogue, and they go downstairs into the bowels every half an hour. The library does a, a journey down to the bowels. But there was somebody in the library who hated the ideas of comic books. There were the classics. And also, I just walked around with total freedom. I mean, usually anybody who's got a collection in the National Art Library is dead. And I was far from dead. And um, and I just got on with people, um, usually like, you know, the cube, the person who um, engaged me. And um, I used to just swan about. I was given a pass and I could go. 
And I got to know other departments somehow, um, which didn't really happen in the V&A. You know, if you're in one department, you never met the other people. But um, that's right, there was a comic book, sort of a celebration for Wimbledon Art College, had a day of events for um, the V&A buying these comics. And that's what I, I, I did. That's the first thing I did. I did a, they didn't ask me to talk, which I thought was, this is a strange world that I'm getting involved in. And I didn't like it from the start because it's a subjective collection. It's what I've done. I thought, how could they not ask me? But the V&A asked me to do a, an exhibition which I did in the Morris Room which is this wonderful tiled, it's now the restaurant, part of the restaurant. And I was given these ancient cabinets. And um, I just put in a sort of a range of things there. And I remember uh, this young man whose father was Nick Garland. Um, you may have heard of, I don't know, who's a writer or something. And his name is Alex Garland. And so he's, he's quite a literati now, but he must have been about 17 or 18 then. And he said to me, um, excuse me, do you know anything about the Tijuana Bibles? So I said, come with me. And I said, those are two originals. You will not find them in many places, certainly not in this country. And they were um, like the underground comics of the 30s, which were like little tablets, like chapbooks in effect, um, which circulated under the counter they were sold. And um, the presses were mobile. So nobody was ever caught and prosecuted. It was, you know, it was, um, call it erotica, pornography, but it was all famous people having sex, but incredibly witty and um, uh, just quite fantastic. I mean, eventually now, they've all been reprinted now, but that was back then. And that's how I got to show off to this young man that, uh, yes, indeed, I do have... Um, the Tijuana Bibles, <laughs> I, because I'd gone in for um, collecting oddities. Are there um, any particular issues that you have very fond memories of, of finally being able to pick up a copy in the years when you were building the collection? Oh yes, yes, yes. Often, I mean, I certainly, um, my favourite was probably Joe Paluca, which was uh, the boxing story. And I, I've used that for the race thing, 1938. Uh, reprinted in comic book format, but originally done in newspapers syndication. And my brother was very interested in boxing, and he did black boxing, ran a gym. 
I mean, it's a, you know, it was against the law, but um, you just carried on for years and just did it, sort of like the little theatre. So between the little theatre and Brian's gym in Scotch's Clough, um, he was quite something. You know, I used to go and train there a bit. Fat, wheezy little boy. Where did you find that, that particular comic? Oh, no, it's a whole series. I've got, like... Um, I mean, it's very relevant, in a way, for my sort of blog thing I did. and My lectures, really. And uh, it's all about boxing. And Ham Fisher... Not to be confused with Bud Fisher, who was very eminent in the history of the newspaper strips. Very eminent and relates to the sort of thing that would have gone into my lectures. And so all of these things went into my lectures. Joe Louis um, said to Ham Fisher, why does Joe Paluca never ever fight a black person. And Ham Fisher said, I'm not going to have Joe Paluca beating up a black person. <clears throat> not a great answer. But, uh, but what he did do is he introduced a black character which, though stereotyped and when it was reissued in 49 they had Smokey was his name he was the second and they went off to the Foreign Legion Joe had a romantic let down or he misread everything and went off to the Foreign Legion and uh, Smokey went with him and it's a wonderful adventure and um, which Joe Paluca, during the Second World War, say 1941, and I've got all of these things here, uh, in the newspaper strips, Joe Paluca was in the army, and of course he couldn't have a, a black person with him, because the army was segregated. So, the wonderful Smokey, was replaced by Jerry Leamy, who was like from Queens or somewhere, and was like a Damon Runyon spiv. And they go back to the same territory where Paluka was captured, and the, uh, the sheik that fell in love with him, and he fought this monster. That was the only time he fought. He fought a Berber. So, well, there we are. That was... That's sort of black, but again, it's Arab. Fantastic, isn't it? That whole Arab thing, the whole perception. I lived with an Arab girl for five years. Should have married her, didn't. Threw her out instead. Madness. Posh background, too posh for me. <laughs> Given that there's always been this perception of comics being kid stuff, 
um, something that you're, you know, people shouldn't take too seriously by some people. Um, and it's, I think, it's still there today to a great extent. Do you think that enables comics to actually be a bit more subversive because people aren't keeping enough of an eye on them in a way that they're not? I, one thing you, I, I think you should understand, comics in this country were conceived for kids. In America, the whole idea of the newspaper syndication is it's got to appeal to the aged and the young. And that governed uh, everything. So you, you couldn't sort of had uh, too much wham-bash in it and, and simple things like that. It was, you know, I mean, Terry and the Pirates. Orson Welles wrote in 41 a letter to the creator Milton Caniff. I mean, that's infused with Oriental racism, stereotyping, which is quite unsavory, which I've always talked about. But um, he praised Milton Caniff for the Dragon Lady. But the thing about Milton Caniff and... Um, I'll show you one of the reprints. I've got all the originals again. I mean, the thing about Milton Caniff once saw his pictures. I think it was the, was it the Louvre or there was an exhibition in France somewhere. And for the first time, he'd seen his work without the, um, the captions, the balloons. And she says, oh, 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 I'm a bit of an artist, aren't I, really? Uh, I mean, why he had such a, a conceptual knowledge of the grammar is astounding. I mean, it's all been there through the newspaper strips, obviously, and developing over the years. But nobody would I attribute such masterly control over the content of the frame and the relationship from frame to frame. No, nobody sort of did it as um, remarkably as uh, Moulton Cannot did. And I mean, this, the artwork is fantastic and the narr the women, I mean, will they just straightforward heroic figures or villains are all equally magnificently treated. You know, and he's just, he's a master craftsman. But I mean, you know, when you, 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 you're covering something, um, you like basically, uh, one way is of thinking is you do a master shot and then you do the different angles that really can be used without the master shot, if needs be. And it's sort of, all that sort of thing was imprinted on Caniff's brain. And he said, yes, he, as he saw the stuff in France, what was it he said? I didn't know I was such a 
an artist or something. <laughs> but um, he's probably not a very nice person. But I mean, the romance in it is fantastic. And the chicanery in it is just... And in a funny way, there's quite a lot about the class situation, about the law, about everything. It's just... It's actually non-pareil. It's incomparable. You know, it's just... Um, and the greatest European creator of comics, by my standing and the standing of, is um, Cortometesi by Hugo Pratt. Well, he's a fan of... Um, Canuff. I think they met once, but um, I mean, he hasn't. What he hasn't got really is the the strange efficiency of grammar. But I mean, Cortese, um, Hugo Pratt is much more important. I mean, especially he is unique in dealing with race. I mean, he's just... Uh, how he could go into all many societies and come out with a, a very astute perception of race. Well, mind you, I suppose I could say that about Jesse Marsh. But, I mean, there's, well, there's not a lot for me to say about the... Um, the art, really. I mean, it sort of speaks for itself. I mean, what are your thoughts on Mobius? Oh well, I, I, I like it a lot yeah. of it. I like now. Hang on, who did Sergeant Blueberry? Was that him too? Mm. Oh, I thought so. Yeah. You know, well, you see that that artwork. Uh, uh, it's the best Western that's mm. come out. It's Straight out of Red Rider was a syndicated strip by Fred Harmon, which has got texture and atmosphere that unfortunately Blueberry could never quite touch on. But, um, but for atmosphere, which is what I search for, and I would have to say, what is the best atmosphere? And, I mean, that's the thing about Mobius. Wonderful atmosphere. And I can't really say that about everything European. You know, I mean, um, it's just sort of poetic. And you sort of just float with it. And it's... Uh, I haven't read enough of Mobius. Of course, now they're all so expensive, these books. <laughs> I mean, just... Um, but a lot, you know, of classic French stuff or European stuff still dates back to the Americans. I had a full collection of Marvel comics from the 60s. I had everything, like, from 1 to 64. 
And I thought, and I was running out of space. So I said, right, these are going to be worth a fortune. That's not what I'm doing it for. So I just got rid of all of them. Like, you know, Daredevil, Spider-Man. And I remember I gave a present of, uh, of X-Men number one to this kid. Um, and I said, whatever you do, don't ever sell this. Just keep it. It's going to be worth a fortune. Well, he lived, uh, his father was a friend of mine, and he lived off Portobello, and um, of course, he ended up like five years later, and he says, uh, he, he actually wrote to me on my blog and told, spilled it all out and said, he sold it for drugs. That's the biggest mistake. He says he still kicks himself, you know, because I don't know what, what the latest is. It wasn't a mint copy, but it was still X-Men number one. And that was, um, yeah, Bernie. And then he yeah, reconnected with him as a grown adult and he'd been through the drug scene and come out of it and, um, was uh, you know pleasant fellow, but he didn't have X Men number one anymore. <laughs> well, what have you seen recently that you think holds up in film or television, or do you not really follow? Cold War. Completely, utterly. I was so moved by it the other day, so involved. It's uh, so wonderful. And uh, he got Best Director for that at Cannes. And I just thought, this is like going back into the past, where, you know, Lindsay and realistic cinema and all that sort of thing. And the atmosphere, though. See, I was talking about um, so approvingly. It's such a rarity. I mean, I the film I liked so much recently was purely because of the atmosphere and was uh, Blade Runner four two o four nine or something. I couldn't get over that. I loved it. Just I seldom feel attached to a film because of the look but with that I I was just swept along I liked the actors and I, I liked the females in it, the one female in it um, of significance who I thought was so good so you wrote the book Inside the Prisoner, which is not just about the prisoner, but also a lot of the other work that you were doing around that time. Uh, have you got any plans to, to follow up on that or any or the other books you're working on at the moment? Well, I suppose what I'm doing now really is... Uh, I'm not sure how it's going. I'm just letting it run, actually. So I want to do it in three parts. The first is just the biography, Apartheid and the Fortress of Fear, 
might be the best rather than comics and the fortress of fear. It's quite a good title, really. Mm. Then the second book, I would like to just go through some of what I gave lectures about and the blog and like my years at the VNA or something. And that's what came out of it. And so, yeah. So with that, Ian, we'd like to thank you for joining us for a really long and insightful chat about uh, not only the prisoner, but your career, your uh, interest in the social and cultural importance of comic books as well. It's been fantastic to talk to you. and Thanks for giving us so much time. My pleasure. So that was our interview with Ian Rakoff, the writer of the Prisoner episode Living in Harmony. We'd really like to take this opportunity to thank Ian for giving us so much time. He was very generous in in, uh, retelling some anecdotes he's told before, but also giving us a few insights uh, that he hasn't revealed before into some of the content that will form uh, his memoirs and forthcoming book that he's putting together at the moment. So on our website, we'll put links to Ian's blog at the V&A and details of his book, Inside the Prisoner. And we're very much looking forward to reading the next book as well that he talked about. Yes, it was a real honour to chat to Ian, and we hope that you've got a sense of Ian's career outside of The Prisoner as well. Um, A bit of an insight into his interest in comic books, his career in film, in so many wonderful projects working alongside uh, the likes of John Borman, uh, Lindsay Anson, Nick Rogue, Robert Altman, Stephen Frears. It's an incredible list of people, and he's kind of been involved with so many wonderful productions as well. So, yes, please do visit the website where, in addition to the episode, we have a few interesting links that go to some information about Ian and also uh, his various blogs, etc. There's so much more you can find out about him by reading his uh, wonderful V&A blog. Yeah, so thanks to Ian and thank you for listening. But until next time, from the Tally Ho, be, be seeing, seeing you. you.